the Old Testament lesson for this, the second Sunday after Christmas, is taken from 1 Kings chapter 3. The king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you've chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, Because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Then he came to Jerusalem, and he stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The epistle lesson is from Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
I invite you to rise as you're able to speak with me the Alleluia verse. We say together, Alleluia, the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Alleluia. The Holy Gospels, according to St. Luke, the second chapter, glory to you, O Lord. The child, that is Jesus, grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And Jesus said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus, well, he increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Well, the text I've selected for this morning's message is the gospel reading for the day of Epiphany, which is from Matthew chapter 2. So whereas in the gospel reading for today, we heard Jesus as a 12-year-old, today we're going to go back uh, probably uh, to when Jesus was anywhere from six months to a year to two years old, and we're reading from Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and they asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly, and he found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, and he said, Go and search carefully for the child, and as soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. Well, after they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented them with the gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is our text. 
in the name of Jesus, the King of all nations. The wise men have generated a lot of speculation over the years. Were there three wise men? Were there seven or eight wise men? Did the Magi come from Babylon or Persia or maybe some other country in the east? How did these astrologers first hear of God's promise? And when did they arrive in Bethlehem? Six months after the birth of Jesus? One year after his birth? Maybe two years after his birth? And what happened to these wise men when they returned home? Well, the Bible doesn't answer those questions. But Matthew's gospel reveals why these magi are considered wise men. The wise men are wise because they're men of faith. And as men of faith, they trust God's word, they act on God's word, and they receive blessings from God. There's little doubt that the wise men were Gentiles. That is, that they were not of Jewish origin. The wise men did not have the good fortune of being taught the Old Testament when they were children, as did the Jewish people. But somewhere in their lifetime, these wise men had encountered God's Word. For they're familiar with a prophecy, a messianic prophecy, that is found in Numbers chapter 24, which reads, A star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel. And because of this prophecy, these astrologers watched the sky for the star or the rising star of Jacob that announces to them the birth of the king, the savior of all the nations. And so one night they're searching the stars in the sky and they see that promised star. God is faithful to his promise. And they pack their bags, they load their camels, they kiss their wives goodbye, and they set out in search of the king. They trust God will lead them to the king of kings to their Savior. The wise men had so little Bible information, and yet the word of the Lord that they do know, they trust. In faith, they follow the star, and they're led to Bethlehem. These Gentile astrologers are the beginning of the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy that says, nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn, Herds of camels will cover your land, and all from Sheba will come, bearing gold and incense, and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. Compare their trust in God's word to that of Herod and the chief priests and the scribes. I mean, Herod is the king of the Jews, and yet he's unfamiliar with some of the prophecies in God's word. Herod has to ask the chief priests and the scribes of the law, where is the Messiah to be born? And the scribes, well, they know the answer to that. They know the word of God, and they speak Micah's prophecy to Herod, saying that Micah the prophet had foretold that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. But they themselves are unmoved by it. We're simply told by Matthew that they and all of Jerusalem are disturbed by the news that the Magi bring. Here are people who have the Word of God. They've had it from the very beginning of their lives. And yet they're so enamored with their heritage. They're so enslaved by their ritual, 
and their observance of the law, that they fail to read the Word of God and know it and live by it and trust it. While serving as a vicar at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Carrollton, Missouri, I went to visit an elderly woman. And knowing that I was new to the area, this kind woman asked if I needed directions to her farmhouse. Well, trusting to my own skills and sense of direction, I assured her that I, had no, I would have no difficulty finding her, her home. Was I ever wrong? I was so lost on those back roads, those country roads, that the only hope I had of finding my way to her was for the Lord to provide a star in the sky to show me how to get to her home. How wonderful it is that the Lord speaks so clearly to us in His Word. For without the Bible, we would be lost. It's our star in the East. The Word of God is that which serves as a compass that reveals Jesus as the long-awaited King. And it's this star, the Word of God, that guides us to Bethlehem and to Cana and to Gethsemane and to Calvary and to the empty tomb and to paradise. The Word of God leads us to our King again and again. And it's in the Word that God speaks to us words of assurance of His mercy. God reveals His love for us in that Word again and again and again as He assures us that in Christ the King, our sins, all of them are forgiven. In the epistle lesson, Paul writes, in Jesus we have redemption. We have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us. And with all wisdom and understanding, He made known to us the mystery of his will how in his son and in his word he has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in christ a pastor told this story in one of his sermons it was about a man from kansas who was injured severely in an explosion losing both hands and eyesight he had become a christian just a few short months before the explosion. But one of his great disappointments was that he was no longer able to read the Word of God. But then he heard of a woman in England who had read the Braille Bible with her lips. So he ordered a Braille Bible and he tried it, but the nerves of his lips were so badly damaged that he couldn't distinguish the characters clearly. But in his futile attempts, his tongue happened to touch a few raised characters and he could feel them and he could learn to read them. And he said, I could read the Bible with my tongue. And so he does, eagerly and regularly. Imagine that, a man who wants to read the Word of God so much that he's willing to learn to read it with his tongue. A woman willing to learn to read it with her lips. Does the Word of God burn in your heart the way that it does for this man, for that woman in England, for the wise men? Or are you and I more like Herod and the scribes and the Pharisees where we become 
uninterested in the Word because it seems outdated, or we're uninterested in the Word because we'd rather live by the rituals of life, the rituals even of worship, as opposed to the living and active Word of God. I mean, do you find yourself eager to read it, to study it, to hear it, to trust it, to live by it? My encouragement to you is that as we begin a new year, that you resolve to make the Word of God the centerpiece of what it is that you'll read and digest each and every day so that God's Spirit can speak to your spirit and God can reveal to you the mysteries of His will for you. He can remind you day by day that you are His child, loved and forgiven by Him. And I think you'll find that as you make the Word of God the centerpiece of your life, that it will enliven your worship of the Lord. It will enliven the way in which you look at life around you, for it will give you hope. It will give you hope. It will fill your heart with joy. God's, worthy, God's Word is worthy of our trust because it's God's Word to us. It's His star in the east for us so that we can navigate our way through life. The wise men were wise not only because they trusted the Word of God, but also because they acted upon it. The wise men made the 700-mile arduous journey through mountain passes and inhospitable terrain based upon God's promise. Now, do you ever think that as they were on their journey that they wondered, what in the world are we doing? I mean, maybe we should turn back. Well, I'm sure that they entertained those thoughts and probably many more. But they continued on until they reached Jerusalem and then eventually Bethlehem. But now imagine, they, they do arrive. The wise men have, have arrived in Jerusalem. They've traveled many miles to worship the king. And when they get to Jerusalem, what do they find? Well, they probably expected others to share their devotion and zeal to worship the newborn king. But instead, they're met with Herod's rage and the scribes and the people's indifference. And yet the wise men, they press on to worship the king. And Matthew tells us that eventually they arrive at the house where Jesus now resides. And the home, it's probably not what they expected. I mean, wouldn't you expect the king to be in a palace? But instead they find him in a humble dwelling. I like what Martin Luther says. He says, although the wise men enter a poor house and find a poor young woman with a poor child, and also there is an appearance so unlike a king that their servant that the wise men's servant is more honorable and reputable, yet the wise men are not troubled. In great, strong, full faith, they put everything out of their eyes and their mind, and they simply follow the verse of the prophet and the testimony of the star, and they believe Jesus to be the king. The wise men fall down, they worship him, and give presents to him. Yes, despite all of what they see and experience, which probably defies their expectations, the wise men fall down on their knees and they worship Jesus as king. They give him the gift of gold to acknowledge him as king. They give him the gift of frankincense, incense, to acknowledge that he is the son of God. They give Jesus the gift of myrrh, which is an embalming oil, as, 
a symbol of death, possibly in anticipation of his death on a cross, the king sacrificed for the sins of the world. Are we not similarly tested? I mean, we ponder the humble surroundings of Jesus' birth. We see an impoverished carpenter and his wife, and his wife is holding this young child in her arms. And this child, well, he looks like any other child. He cries like any other child. He stumbles and trips like any other child. And he has to grow and learn and study like any other child. And yet, this child is God in the flesh. He's the Savior of the world. He's the King of all kings. And we wonder, how can this be? Is this child really? Is he really God's eternal son? Is he really born of the Virgin Mary? Is this man who's hanging on the cross of Calvary, is he really the Savior of the world? Like, is that even possible? And did he really rise from the dead? And if he is God in the flesh, the King of all kings, then... Why do we continue to trust in him when he is largely ignored by our family and our friends and our neighbors and even met with indifference by some of our church members? And yet people of faith, people like the wise men, people like you and me, we act on the word of God and we press on for we see Jesus through the eyes of God-given faith And so we set out on long, arduous journeys in life knowing that there will be perilous times, that we'll be going through tough terrain, so to speak, but yet we press on, always focused on the star in the east, the Word of God and, and the promises God gives to us. And again and again, that star in the east leads us to the Christ who is our source of hope, who is the source of our forgiveness, who is our Savior and King. And are we tempted at times to turn back Absolutely. Absolutely. But the star in the east, the scriptures, through the scriptures, God continues to beckon us to go forth and to go on, and He will bless us. How might we respond to the king? Well, despite everything, the wise men, they knelt down and they worshiped him. And I guess that's probably where we start too, isn't it? How do we respond to this king, to the Savior, our Savior? Well, we worship him. We worship him. We adore him. And we present to him our gifts day by day by day. Because we recognize that worship isn't just something that happens on a Sunday morning. It isn't just something that happens within a sanctuary like this or even in the sanctuary of your home. But worship is something that we do day by day as we live in the light of Christ and and have His light shine through us into the areas of our life where God takes us. Offering time in the Kalo Lutheran Church located in the southern island of the Philippines is is always an interesting experience even if there isn't gold, frankincense, and myrrh put into the collection plate. For you see, the members of that congregation believe that God is the owner of everything and that they're simply the managers of all that the Lord has given to them. And so after the collection of money is over, the worshipers who have no cash to give as gifts, they give their offering. And so some, well, they sing a song. 
Some give a chicken to help feed the pastor. And others promise to set aside a certain time of the week for prayer. But eventually, everyone, everyone gives a gift to the Lord. And every gift, no matter what it is, is just as valuable as frankincense and myrrh and gold. Paul, he didn't have expensive gifts to give to the Lord, but St. Paul's gift was to live a life of servanthood as a servant of the gospel, proclaiming the gospel to the Gentile world. He says, although I'm less than the least of all of God's people, this grace was shown to me to preach to the Gentiles, to make plain to everyone the administration of his mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God. I became a servant of this gospel. We may not have gold, frankincense, and myrrh to offer to our king. We may not be able to preach and teach like St. Paul did. But we can give our king a servant's heart, a joyful attitude, a commitment to read his word, a fervency in prayer, to increase our financial offerings to the Lord's work, to lead our children and our grandchildren to our Savior's waiting arms, to assist our neighbor, to love our fellow church member who's in need, to let Christ's light shine wherever we are in whatever we're doing. These are just some of the gifts that we can offer to the Lord as an act of worship in response to all that He has done and continues to do for us through Christ. The wise men are wise not only because their faith rested on God's Word and they acted on God's Word, but because they also received blessings from God. The Lord opened up their eyes to see the prophecy, and He opened up their hearts to believe that prophecy. And it was the Lord who led them to Christ, and He blessed them as they followed Him, for they were able to behold the face of, the, of God, the only begotten Son of the Father. And they were able to rejoice in Jesus as their Savior. And the Lord, He gave them the privilege of serving the King with their gifts. And then the Lord granted them protection on their homeward way. It was God who made them truly wise. And we are also wise men, women, and children because in faith, God-given faith, we trust His Word. In faith, we act on His Word. And in faith, we're blessed by His Word. The Lord has opened up our eyes And he has worked in our hearts, faith to believe in Jesus as the King. In faith, we receive God's forgiveness through Christ. We know of his help in life's perils, and we have the assurance of everlasting life. It's our God-given faith that makes us truly wise men, because then we worship Christ as our King, and we serve him. Amen. And now may the peace of God which surpasses all understanding guard and keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.